Come gather round the campfire and hear our ghostly tales of chilling terrors, darkest woes, and anything that goes bump in the night. So cuddle up with your best friend or dare it alone. The darkness is closing in and spirits are calling your name. This is Fireside Phantoms. Well, today I'm very excited. We're going to be talking about my favorite author of mm. horror. Oh, who could that be? Um, I think you mentioned him last episode, Holly. <laughs> Maybe. The King, Stephen King, of Stephen course. Stephen King. Yeah, I grew up reading his books, you know, so many of them, Long Into the Night with my flashlight undercovers. He's a compelling author. The thing about Stephen King when I read him is that it feels like... You can go for hundreds of pages before anything scary really happens. And you're you're really getting into his characters and yep. their day-to-day lives. And all of a sudden something scary happens. You're like, oh, that's right. I'm reading a horror novel. Yeah. I kind of forgot. It, and it really pulls you in. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, he, the way he writes, um, like you said, it is all about his characters. And you really care about them. And yeah. so that's why you're just, you're, you're really invested. But I've always kind of wondered okay, what kind of childhood trauma did he have (laughs) or influences that inspired him to write all these really horrific, scary stories? Because let's face it, he's written over 80 novels. I think he, I think I read somewhere where he's had over 130 short stories published. Wow. I mean, this guy just constantly is churning out new novels. And When interviewed, Stephen said, no, he felt like his childhood was pretty normal. I mean, besides him growing up without a dad, I guess his father walked out on his mother when he and his older brother were just little toddlers. Where did Um, they grow up? Was it uh, Vermont or Maine or wherever he lives? Yeah, he still lives uh, in Maine, I believe, and that's where he grew up. He basically was just saying he had really vivid dreams and nightmares He really believes a lot of that helps fuel his stories. And other than struggling with poverty growing up, he doesn't really think there's anything particularly negative in his life that shaped his love of horror. He just loves it. And according to also some of the uh, comments he's made, he did admit that he could have repressed memories from a trauma that he was told about by his mother. So this is interesting because his mother said... um, about a time when he was really young, he had gone to play with a neighbor kid whose whose home was, you know, situated right by the railroad tracks. And usually his mom would get a call from him or the other parent telling her to pick him up. But this particular time, Stephen just shows up on his own back home about an hour after he left. And he said, quote, my mom was worried because I was white as a ghost and refused to speak to anyone for the rest of the day. And later it was discovered the kid I was playing with got run over that day by a freight train oh my God. while crossing the tracks. And, you know, he said, when I got much older, my mother relayed the story to me and told me that they had to gather all the pieces of <gasps> his body parts in a wicker basket. Oh, so, yeah, and that's not trauma at all. Um, oh, you know, my. so there is there is that unknown. Maybe he witnessed the accident. I mean, he was a toddler at the time, right? Or a little kid. And how old or, was he? I, I don't know. Um, the the whole story. It didn't give his age oh, at the time. It just God. said he was little. He was like oh, a little kid. Geez. And um, or perhaps he saw the aftermath. Mm. Like, what if he like went over there, saw it and then just like rushed back home? What if he pushed him in front of the truck? Okay. <laughs> 
Josh cut that because I knew she was going to go there. No. This is where the lawsuits come in. No. Holly. No. He knows I didn't mean oh, that. Okay. But it she's, does. Explain, she's sorry, Stephen. You does, would never hurt a fly. It does we know explain you. a lot, though. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'm well, just saying. You that know, maybe. I, I will not. I will not. Um, I will not condemn you too hard because that thought did pop into my head too. I, I, of course it did. It just seems a little too it, coincidental <laughs> that he witnessed or yes. was a part of and a then tragedy. Quickly came home and then all of a sudden got all this inspiration yeah, for horror. he was horror. so creative and then came up with all these really terrible no. ideas for books. I'm Holly, like, sorry. Huh. Yeah, you, we know, we know that didn't happen. <laughs> but he said he always had a thrill of wanting to be scared. He loved it. And I, I kind of am the same way. I I'm love to be too. scared knowing I'm still safe. Yeah. Um, and yet he said his imagination made him scared all the time. So there was, you know, he said there was always this monster in my closet. There was always the monster under my bed. Yeah. He always had to have the light turned on at night. I wonder if when, like, cause I used to do this when I would write all the time. I don't really write anymore, but mm -hmm. if I was writing something scary, I'd have to stop because I start to freak myself out. <laughs> so I wonder if, if he, he gets does that, that way. If he gets scared himself while he's writing one of his books. I would I would want to ask him that because I do know he has said a lot of his stories are loosely based on true experiences. Huh. He's either witnessed or heard about. A lot of his characters Does it include Pennywise? Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, a lot of his characters he models after his own life and mm. struggles. Like I know um, I know you've heard about this. He's had a long battle fighting inner demons like alcohol and drug addiction. Oh, I didn't know and that. And so some of the characters, like he tries to make cameo appearances in his movie renditions, mm -hmm. but a lot of his characters will struggle with those same oh, issues. Interesting. Okay. Well, Stephen King met his wife, Tabitha, in college, of course, oh, while in the hi, library. And guess what? She's a writer too. Oh, that's Isn't so that so perfect? So cute. <laughs> Well, their marriage almost didn't last. I mean, they're still married, but it was because of his alcohol and cocaine abuse that she almost left him. Mm. However, with one last attempt with an intervention, he was able to get help and she stuck with him. Oh. He's been interviewed saying it was so bad during the 80s for him that he regrets he has no recollection of writing a couple of his books. Oh, wow. Cujo. He has no recollection of writing Cujo, one of the oh, best wow. books. Wow. Yeah, it's a it's one of my favorite it is Stephen King so films. good. Yeah, and, and it's so realistic. And parts of it. What he if, remember what if that clown was that, part of the binge? That makes sense. Yeah, that, that sense. kind of. Yeah. The floating, floating coke. and You float too. <laughs> we all float. I think Stephen realizes without Tabitha, he could not be the man he is today or nearly as successful because of her influence because she really has helped him get books published that he wouldn't have otherwise. Okay. Um, you know, all of his books, I think, are just, you know, amazing. But as a teenage girl growing up, I think the story of Carrie mm -hmm. and Pet Cemetery were the two that really haunted me and really changed me. Are those the books that launched his career? Carrie was. Carrie was his first published novel. And it, it was the one that really made him famous as a horror writer. He mm. almost didn't get it written. And the reason why is as he was write, writing it, he was like, I can't do this. I can't write um, the woman star of the show because I don't know anything about how teenage Being females feel. He did a good job, though, of 
capturing how bitchy girls can be to each other. I mean, he did an amazing job. Amazing. <laughs> and he said it, you know, he was like half finished and he just was like, this is trash. And he actually put the manuscript out in the trash can. Wow. But his wife dug it out and started reading it. And she was like, this is amazing. And she you know, got it back out. She's like, you have to complete the story because she wanted to know how it was going to turn out. And that novel really was the story that launched him into fame. Wow. And good when job, Tabitha. I know. Good job, Tabitha. So in his novel, Carrie, the main character, Carrie White, Sissy Spacek played Sissy the main character. Sissy Spacek. I can't really see her in anything else. I know. I, I can't see her in it. That Karen. blood all oh. over her. And that look, the, her uh, eyes are all yeah. popped. And, oh, my God. Oh, my God. She's so scary. But, you know, this character was inspired by two classmates of his. Really? He had gone to school with these two girls who were relentlessly bullied. And there was no way they could get out of being bullied. They tried to change their clothes. They tried to do different things. But the classmates were so cruel. Yeah. And they just would not give up this image yeah. that they had of them and yeah. it, and so he said that you know were the, these two girls friends with each other no they were in different grades uh, but he said for for those people who don't know the story carrie basically he makes it so that the main character who gets bullied gets the ultimate revenge by yeah. using a secret paranormal gift of pyrokinesis yeah basically this is the ability to control fire with your mind it's pretty awesome so yeah spoiler alert she <laughs> ends up this this is why this book was so good it was so controversial she ends up setting the whole gymnasium on fire on prom night Killing and you, John Travolta. Killing everyone. <laughs> and I was like, the whole time in the book and the movie, you're like, go, Carrie, go. Yes. Yes. Get yeah. revenge, Carrie. And then you're like, no, Carrie, no. You're too much Too Carrie. far, Carrie. Slow down, Just Carrie. no, Carrie. How could you do that? <laughs> Carrie, Carrie, stop it. Stop, Carrie. Oh, Not my God, too. Carrie. Carrie, stop. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the book was so powerful. It just stuck with me for a really long yeah. time. And I think it just made me realize... Um, I don't ever want to be that kid that makes somebody go to that link. Oh, I know. I, you yeah. know, the other thing, too, that I thought was powerful in that story was her mother. Mm -hmm. Over the top, hardcore. Hardcore, religious. Like, religious. Fanatic. Zealot, like, just I intense. Mean, oh, gosh. And I would never want to be that kind of mother who would drive my child to a pyrokinesis. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it was, uh, I mean, it's a... She had extremes at school and she had extremes with her home life. And the only friend she had was that one PE teacher. Mm -hmm. And that and was, that was it. it. Yeah. So, and the other one, of course, I know you love this one too, Pet Cemetery. I do love Pet Cemetery. Church, the cat. Yes. And did you know that of all of Stephen King's novels, <laughs> this is the one book he wished he had never written? Why? So published in best. I know published in 1983, he felt the book was too dark and crossed a line. For morbid Stephen King, that is saying a lot. <laughs> yeah. That is from the guy who tried to kill his friend when he was a toddler. Right. No, <laughs> okay, we we are sorry, Stephen. I don't know why she's going there. You know why I'm going there. But um, <laughs> he didn't realize how awful the story was until he was done writing it. And of course, he stuck it. No, he stuck it in his drawer and, and he would not. It. Tabitha was like, you need to publish this book. Well, the, the deal was, is that he wanted to get out of a book contract. Right. Okay. 
And this book contract, he just didn't want to be connected anymore. And he owed this company one more book. And she's like, just you have a book in your desk, pull it out, give it to him, be done. And he's like, it's so bad. But he did. And he finished it and he gave it to him. And I'm sorry, it is so good. It's amazing that he thinks that's a bad book. No, no. Wait till you hear the rest of my whole story because you're going to. Okay. He's not a good judge of, of his own writing. <laughs> I guess, I guess I'm going to tell you he's I, I think Tabitha is right on the money most of the time. So he had rented a home he needed a new area to write he needed some new inspiration so they rented this house in orrington maine he said that this this death of kids really hit close to home for him because his family and his kids lived on that actual road and they saw a lot of roadkill oh i mean that road did claim a lot of pets so that road was a real road in his world it was a real road in his world and the home that they were renting in Orrington, Maine, had a little path that led up to the actual pet cemetery, and the word was misspelled just like the book. Okay, I've often wondered that because they do not spell cemetery correctly, and I'm always pissed off because when I'm Googling you're it, like, where the hell is this movie? Well, you can't find it because yeah. you're you're doing the regular C-E-M-E-T-A-R-Y. And it's the child spelling. It's the S. S-A-M-A-T-A-R-Y. Is it S-A? S-E-M-A-T-R-Y. I think it's, um, hold on, let's look it up. Oh, yeah, let's do. Let's try if we can even get it to work. But I think it's spelled with an S. No, it is definitely spelled with an S, but I think it's S-E-M-E. S-E-M-A-T-A-R-Y. Pet cemetery. Pet cemetery. So they're like sounding it out. Instead of C-E-M-E-T-E-R-Y. Yeah. Pet cemetery, the inspiration came from his daughter, whose cat Smucky died. Smucky. Not church. Smucky. So how many kids does he have? He has a daughter and a son, I okay. believe. One okay. of each. So Smucky dies. And if, if I'm missing another one, I'm sorry. And um, Stephen's like, okay, daughter, we need to take Smucky to the pet cemetery. Yes. Yeah, so you're figuring it out. So the neighbor found the cat lying dead on the side of the road. The road was really busy with fast trucks cars and all that stuff the animals always met their end on that road she loved that cat he said and at night they took they took the cat up buried him up in the pet cemetery was the neighbor an elderly old man he was yeah just like in the book he was okay okay yes okay and um he said after they got back he heard her out in their garage yelling and popping, you know, that bubble wrap stuff that feels so yeah. good to pop. Yeah. Well, they had some of that in the garage left over from their move. And she was shouting at the top of her lungs, God can't have my cat. That cat is my cat. Let him have his own cat. That is so sad. That is sad. It like breaks my heart. So he got the inspiration of bringing back her cat from the dead. <laughs> He's like, well, what if I could get her her cat back? (laughs) So even after all the years of hearing it on audiobooks, Stephen is grieved by this book because he said there's no hope. It just offers the reader nothing, no redemption at all, and it hits too close to home. He said there was even Mm. another incident. His son, Owen, who was two at the time, had this really scary incident when the whole family was outside flying a kite, and you know how kids are. Mm. You're not paying attention for one second, and they're gone. So he was ran out to the road. Yes. There's a semi-truck coming. Yes. And King, (laughs) fortunately, I know, can you see it in your head? Yes. I've seen the movie. I I know. (laughs) I can totally see it. All right. Well, at the last second, King was able to snatch him back wow. before he got, oh. you know, squashed. And that also mirrored the scene in the book. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So quote. It, so it's too personal for him. It Pet really Cemetery is. is too personal. Yeah. yeah. And quote, he said, put simply, I was horrified by what I had written and the conclusions I'd drawn. Yet this book was one of his most successful and beloved novels. And I do remember mm. this awful, most memorable line, but it hit me really hard. What's quote. That? Sometimes dead is better. Oh, uh, yes. That's a great. It's a great tagline. It totally is because I I really think this book helped me deal with loss. I mean, mm. at that age, you know, you are probably losing your pet for the first time. Yeah. You probably are losing a grandparent. And knowing that letting someone go and truly grieving is the better way. Yeah. I mean, they are better off dead. And sometimes that's a good lesson. Otherwise, you know, I might have gone down a very dark path, started doing voodoo or something. I mean, you just don't know <laughs> yeah. how my life could have turned out, Holly. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. don't you don't want to get into the habit of trying to bring back people from the dead. That can be really creepy. Yeah. And that book showed me. <laughs> yes, like, it did. You don't want it's to bring back dead people. It's a good moral lesson. It's a good moral lesson. Just leave it alone. Go through your grief and move on with your life. <laughs> so and I've, I've always wondered this about Stephen King. What is Stephen King afraid of? What are his real fears? Death? Because you will. Yeah. I mean, if you try and read his books and figure it out, there's one thing that's missing. I think a lot from his books. Hmm. Spiders. Ugh. Spiders have always creeped him out, he said. So he doesn't write about them. I don't think so. I don't remember any huge, horrible spiders in his books. I I don't remember them either. But, but I could be missing. Pennywise at the end it's, of it in the 1990s Oh, there version, was one. He was a big giant spider at the end. At the very end. I think he was in the yeah. new version too, but I can't remember. So that's one of his fears. Big okay. cars and trucks and elevators also. Like he doesn't like elevators. And that, I mean, that makes sense to me about the trucks because uh, do you remember that in 1999 he was walking and right. got struck by this Dodge Caravan truck thing? Karma. Well, it complete. Oh my <laughs> God. Josh, cut all of this out. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh my God. <laughs> Karma. Couldn't stop myself. Oh my God. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, that's bad. Oh. Oh my God. I'm going to pee my pants because it's so bad, but so freaking funny. So he stopped writing for a period of time because it was so painful for him to sit in the car. I mean, he got busted up. He got so hooked on opiates during that time also. Oh, wait. And so wait, wait. He was off his addiction. He got hit by the truck. And got back hooked on oh, opiates shit. this time. So it, he broke like a shit ton of bones, didn't he? Okay. So this is what his injuries included. Okay. A huge gash in his forehead. A fractured right hip and leg, a punctured lung with broken ribs. I mean, it's a miracle the guy lived. How would you like to be the guy that hit him? Okay, so this is the good part, right? The guy that hit him, his name is Brian Smith. It turns out this guy was also addicted to painkillers. Weird. He had a total addiction. He had been arrested like 11 times for drinking and driving under the influence. So was he high when he hit him? He was um, distracted is all, I think. His dog was doing something in the pat, and he leaned over to do the dot and then went off the road and hit him. Oh, but um, King, Stephen King did something really interesting. He went out of his way to buy the van that almost killed him. Really? He went and bought it and he said he did it so fans wouldn't be able to own it as a souvenir. <laughs> oh, shit. The other thing he did is he saved his glasses. The glass part in the frame survived mm-hmm. and he wears it today. He refuses really? to get the lenses replaced because 
He said it's a good reminder that even though there's fragile things, you can still survive trauma through it. He's probably frugal, so... I don't know. Have you seen his houses? Yeah, I'm sure he's not. They are he's amazing. Got, did you in your research undercover or undercover uncover how much he's worth? He is worth a lot. Millions and millions. Millions and millions. And millions. Of dollars. I mean, he ha he get he's gives away a lot of money. He's yeah. very generous, but he also spends a lot of money. He puts most of his fortune into his homes. Yeah. Um, he's have, got many homes. He's got like three or four homes. I remember reading that one of his houses in Maine. He lived next to a baseball park and he had paid them money to put a scoreboard up on the field so he could see it from the upper window of his house because <laughs> he wanted to be able to see how the, the score. score. Yeah. That is so cute. I didn't know I that. I think I read that once and it was Stephen King. And I thought it was pretty funny. Yes. Stephen King has the most amazing house. And as I was doing my research, I noticed that his house is Full on Halloween. Really? Full on. He's got these like amazing gates that surround the property and they all have these designs of bats. Oh my God. And gargoyles and dragons and all kinds of fantastic things. And <sighs> what is so funny is that everybody knows where he lives. So every day somebody hangs a red balloon on the gate and there's always like this red balloon floating there's always and he never he never unties it. It's always there. Like, you know, I want to go there and it's awesome. Treat. It's so, so nice. He and, lives in Bangor, Maine. Am I saying yeah, that? Right yeah. Yeah. And oh, my God, that's so cool. It is a total Halloween house. Oh, it's amazing. And he tells people not to come there on trick or treat night because he will not be home. <laughs> he doesn't want anybody there on he's, Halloween. He's, he's a very private partying person. someplace else. I'm sure he's got yeah. lots of invitations. That is cool. So I'm going to put some pictures of his house on the internet. And, and I love it's like an old Victorian house. Mm -hmm. it looks so spooky. Yeah. Oh my God. Look at that beautiful i want to live there with isn't Stephen it King. so gorgeous oh, it's called <laughs> Maine. it may maine looks amazing to me it's so oh, gorgeous that does look cool but it just wouldn't snow so much there i know that's the, the only reason i wouldn't move to the northeastern part of the united states is i don't want to deal with the snow and all the hauntings over there i would like the hauntings but not there's the snow. so many hauntings so many the other weird thing is that this driver that hit him brian smith was found dead on September 21st, 2000, in his trailer really? from a drug overdose oh, of painkillers. But do you know the significance of September 21st? Is that Stephen King's birthday? Stephen King's birthday. That's my brother's birthday. Oh, oh I didn't know that. Huh. So do you think he had so much guilt over hitting Stephen King that he OD'd, or do you think it was just a coincidence? I think he was just like messed up. I think he did a lot of drugs. And Stephen said um, he thought it was also weird, the synchronicity. Yeah. So he, he was like, this is strange. And he said, quote, our lives came together in a very strange way. I'm grateful I didn't die, but I am also sorry he's gone. So he, he doesn't hold any ill will towards him. So the fact that he almost lost his life to somebody who had this addiction and then he got re-addicted, that helped him get off? The opiates because he didn't yeah he want to mirror this guy yeah he did um kick that habit too so Good. he's overcome a lot of his own personal demons 
And it's just interesting because I think seeing somebody like that, you know, shook him up to say, look, I could have been that person. Sure. I didn't drive while I was high, but, you know, I. Anybody could be in that position. I mean, with all the things Mm -hmm. you can get hooked on nowadays, anyone can make the wrong decision and producing your body needs this thing all the time. And And then before you know it, you're you're driving down the street and you're running over a famous author, (laughs) you know, (laughs) Hop, skip, jump. Karma. <laughs> Karma. Uh, no. Get it? Karma. No, I'm kidding. So, okay, I told you that, you know, I kind of really was fascinated by Stephen King, the person, too, because, you know, mm. you want to get in the mind of, of who's writing all these fabulous works of horror. Yeah. You know, and um, so in an interview that he gave, they asked him, okay, what's the scariest book you've ever read? And he said, Orwell's 1984 oh, shit. <laughs> was the scariest book he's ever read. Oh, boy. Do you know what his favorite book is? Uh, the Bible. No. <laughs> Lord of the Flies. Oh, God. Those are both very dark. That is a dark, dark book. novels. Oh. Um, he, he had a list of his favorite top 10 books and strangely, no Harry Potter was there, but <laughs> I know Harry I'm Potter. so disappointed, but Lord of the Rings by huh. J.R.R. Tolkien is on that list. So huh. what else did he like? Um, I don't remember. Those were the main ones. Okay. Uh, there was a couple I didn't recognize. Yeah. I know he hates Hemingway. He doesn't like Hemingway oh, no. at all. Not so much. Mm-mm. I didn't like Faulkner. I had to read a lot of Faulkner in college, and I was not a fan. Fuck Faulkner, man. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't teach Stephen King in my college, damn it. Darn they should it. have. And you know what? As I was listening to his interviews at some of the colleges, I'm like, oh, I would have loved to have had him as a professor. Was Could he you a imagine? Professor? He taught for a while, I think, before he got published. Yeah. Oh, before he published. Yeah. Yeah. I think he was probably going to be something along those lines, like probably an English professor or something. It's like Sting. He used to be a lit professor. Sting? Yeah, Sting was a lit professor before he joined the police and became the lead singer. Oh, my God. Can you imagine if he had been a professor? Don't stand so close to me. I had the biggest crush on yeah, him when I was be, younger. He'd be up there all sexy and he'd be like, no. He'd probably, <laughs> he'd probably saying all of his lectures to his class. Oh my gosh. All the girls were just gazing at him like, you're Okay, so we may have to pause this, this <laughs> podcast so I, I can let, play some of his music again. <laughs> Those were such good days. Yeah. His favorite novel that he has written is called Lizzie's Story. What? Yeah. <laughs> What the hell oh is my that? God. Oh, stitches. That's exactly my reaction. I'm like, what the hell is Lizzie's story? I've never heard of it. Is it about Lizzie Borden? No. Oh. I know that would be good. Yeah. No. He said this character is modeled after his own wife and their marriage. But this story is crazy. Okay, I have not. <laughs> Tabitha's like, I don't Tabitha. want you to publish this one, Stephen. No, no, no. Ta- Tabitha's like, um, that was sweet, but let's not publish it's this literally. one. Let's He's just... like, this is my favorite. Keep our personal life personal, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So he said that he was inspired to write the story um, because, you know, in marriage, he said, you know somebody and then you don't know them. They still keep parts of themselves hidden from you and it's a journey through life the more that you're with somebody you find out these things about them as you go along and she's like did you know i was a serial killer and she finds out he's batshit crazy (laughs) at the end no i'm kidding but um the year was 2000 okay 2000 i'm picturing stephen king 
in the hospital with a case of pneumonia. Oh, shit. So wait, he got in the car accident in 99, and then now he's 2000, and he's got pneumonia. A good memory. Was that nine? Yeah. Yeah. A year later. He's, he, he's in the hospital. He's got a really bad case of pneumonia. So this goes on, and at one point, it just looks like he's not going to make it out of there alive. Wow. He's telling this story, right? He eventually comes home. And he finds out his office while he was in the hospital was completely packed up and cleared out. <gasps> so for a while, he's standing wait, wait, there. Wait, is this a story he's written or this is what actually happened to him? This is what actually happened to him. Oh, this shit. is the inspiration for Lissy's story. Okay. So for a while, he's just like standing there and he's like looking around his office and he's contemplating he might have actually died in the hospital. And he's a ghost looking at his empty <laughs> office. So can you imagine him thinking yeah, that? totally. And his wife walks in, finds him standing in the office, and she goes, Oh, hey, honey, glad you make it back home. So glad to see you. But yeah, I already wrote your obituary, made your office my new sewing room. <laughs> we really didn't think to, we really didn't expect you home. You know, we really thought and that was it. Wow. No, I mean, Ballsy. I, she didn't really say that. I was going to say. <laughs> but that's how it would make me Your feel. Your body wasn't even cool yet. We I went mean, ahead and... <laughs> that's like when I went to college. I mean, I, I thought I was going to get to come home every summer. It's like, no, but, honey, your room is yeah. now my sewing room. Yeah, you're gone. You're going to have to find somewhere else yeah. to live. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so I just, I felt bad for him when he but was saying that. Did she explain to him why his office was cleared out? Does she really think he was going to die? I think she did. Oh, really? I think it was that bad, yeah. Wow. I think she was packing it up, like getting it all put away. Or and you know, you you have to remember he he wasn't writing anyway. His body was so wrecked Whoa. from that accident, he actually couldn't write for a while. Wow. It hurt him so bad. Man. You know, and as a horror author, you know, we always wanna know, because he writes a lot of paranormal things, mm -hmm. I would think he would believe in ghosts. Mm -hmm. being you know a writer of this or he'd want to believe in ghosts you know yeah and i know his inspiration for the shining came from his experience staying at the stanley hotel in yep. colorado yep he was a guest staying in room 217 and it was end of tourist season so he and his wife were the only people staying there right how creepy is that, that? Is pretty creepy the room was already rumored to be haunted Nice. And being who he was, he ended up at the bar having a drink and talking with a bartender named Grady. Nice. Yeah. So some similar things already we can see in The Shining. And that night, he said he had a terrible nightmare that his son was being chased by a fire hose all through the hallways of the hotel. <laughs> he said it was terrifying. Wow. And he woke up and got the inspiration to write the story oh. but the interesting thing is the movie the shining by stanley kubrick was not liked at all by stephen king he had an issue with the characters whose portrayal of their personalities didn't match with his vision of what he had of them in his book huh yeah so you know that was one of my favorite movies yeah it's and i thought scary. jack nicholson did an amazing job but those characters weren't weren't what he had envisioned because he was envisioning him right uh-huh and his wife and he, his son he was he was envisioning his like, family jack nicholson's too crazy for right me. i yeah. think so yeah i don't know if he actually came out and said that but i think he just was disappointed in it and the hotel in the movie holly was not even the real hotel that he stayed at in mm. colorado what they did is they featured the timberline lodge at mount hood Woo! 
in Oregon. Thank you. And yes, it is a creepier hotel by far. Yeah. I'm glad they did that. But Stephen King was probably like, what? Well, you know, if you go up to Timberline Lodge and you go to the front desk, you can say, can I see your axe from The Shining? And they'll pull out an axe. And And we'll have blood and hair all over it. No, but you can get your picture taken with it. Let's do it. Pretty cool. Let's do it. You know what? But on it Halloween. wasn't from the actual film. I just have it there as a nod to the fact that The Shining was oh, you know, gotcha. Shot the the exteriors were shot at Timberline Lodge. Gotcha. Did I send you that video um, on Instagram of Jack Nicholson? And it's kind of shot right before he um, takes the axe and he he bangs down the door. No. That um, what's her name is on the other side, and he's basically it shows him getting ready for the scene, and he's like jumping up and down and getting all crazy and oh. stuff, and and then then they like roll and and, and then he's in that yeah yeah mode. yeah he's in that brain space for the scene, and it's kind of yeah. crazy to watch it. Jack Nicholson, I think, is not all quite there anyway. <laughs> I mean, I yeah, those eyebrows, artists are, are a horror story in, in and of themselves. Actors in particular have to have a connection to some kind of uncontrolled creative space in their brains where they can really let go of the logical, the plausible, and go someplace that we normally don't get to do. Mm -hmm. And um, I think you have to be a little bit off-center in order to reach that place. You're You're not harmonizing in the intelligence sphere. Not to say that actors are not intelligent, but there's something about the logic that gets dumped and then you're immersed in the spirit and that creative and the you know the emotion and, of somebody and yet so many times i i hate to say this because i don't want to be one of those book snobs but my imagination when i'm reading the story mm-hmm. i'm always almost always disappointed in the movie right a after lot of I've people read a book. who like the book's or tend to feel the books are better and a lot of time the books are better yeah yeah i think because it gives you that freedom to to just make it that personal spin right it's so it's it's, going to fit what you want it to fit more so i think so and then film is more somebody else's vision um did you ever read the stand yes stan was really good it was so good dark tower the whole series and he said he's he'll never be done with dark dark tower he's always like thinking of more things to add to it um, I know they recently remade The Stand with Whoopi Goldberg. Mm-hmm. Um, the Stand was one of my all-time favorite movies. Really good. The movie was amazing. Yeah, on yeah. that one, not yeah. only the book but the movie really was good. Christine, yeah, so many, so good. Oh, Misery. No, Misery. Misery by far is one of his best. Oh my God, so scary. Kathy Bates nailed that. Nailed that role. Oh my God, she was so good in that. I think he did say she really did nail that role. She was. He did like her in that role. So creepy, and you know, obviously that's what his one of his biggest yeah. fears: being trapped in a remote area with his biggest fan, <laughs> who doesn't <laughs> so, like his latest book. <laughs> so Holly, I've got a challenge for you. Okay. What act are you going to follow with Stephen King? That's Because that's going to be a hard one. It is hard um, because there's not a lot of authors you can compare to him. No. But as you know, I'm doing mine on Anne Rule, but it's not quite the same because she's a true crime writer. But Oh, that's right. Yes. And it's not my story isn't so much about Anne Rule. 
What? It's kind of about her. Okay. It, it is a little bit about her, but it's really about her most famous novel, as most people well, will know. Well, that's fine. So, I mean, I talked about some of Stephen King's novels. Yeah. I don't go into great detail about her novels, just the one book, really. And and even that, not to a great degree. Um, so, yeah, let's talk about Anne Rule for a while. Let's. Shall we? Anne Rule was born Anne Ray Stackhouse on October 22nd, <laughs> 1931 in Lowell, Michigan. Carol, stop. <laughs> Growing up in a law enforcement family, Anne followed in the footsteps of her grandfather and her uncle, and she became a police officer herself. And this time she did that in Seattle, Washington. Good old Seattle, just north of here. Yep. She went to the University of Washington, which, of course, is in Seattle, and she studies, bleh, and she studied psychology, criminology, and she also took some creative writing classes. I thought you were going to say criminology. Like uh, criminology. Like cremating school. <laughs> maybe. Maybe she did. I don't but know. But it's criminology. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> Little did she know that she was going to use all of these disciplines to build her career as a true crime writer. Yay! In 1969, she actually started to write for a magazine called True Detective, but it was under a pen name, which was Andy Stack. Um, at some point, and I couldn't really tell when, she met a guy named Bill Rule, and they got married, and that's where she got the last name of Rule. So she was able much to leave- better than Stack. <laughs> she was able to leave Stack House behind <laughs> and move on with her life. Um, Good move, Anne. Good she, move. She and Bill had four kids together, two boys, two girls. Um, but they did get divorced in 1972, and he actually passed away not too long after that. In 1971, Anne had decided to volunteer at a suicide prevention hotline. Um, apparently, her brother had committed suicide when he was a college student at Stanford. Oh. And so she always felt sad about that that she couldn't have helped him so she was compelled to volunteer at the suicide hotline just to help other people because mm -hmm. she wasn't able to help her brother so at the suicide hotline she met a very nice handsome young man that she actually once said she would love to have set him up with one of her daughters if her daughters were a little bit older <laughs> what that's mm -hmm. weird uh-huh she said his name was ted he was very tall. He had wavy brown hair. He was smart. He was studying to become an attorney and charming. He had a megawatt smile. Why am I thinking Ted is not a good guy? <laughs> Holly? Do you know what? Stop being so judgmental, Carol. Just go with the story. Okay, I'm trying. Okay, just stay open. <laughs> now, my dad, who was named Ted, was a very good guy. But mm -hmm. this guy sounds too good to be just true. Just him as a teddy bear. This just guy seems cuddly, too good to be true. Warm, fuzzy teddy bear. Um, the two of them actually became really close friends, and mm -hmm. they often confided in each other about their personal lives. Um, she met him about the time she was going through her divorce, so she would cry on his shoulder and oh. Bill did this today, and you know he would be like, "Oh, and it's okay." And then he would talk to her about his girlfriend that he was living with. Her name was Liz Clofer. Mm -hmm. I think I'm saying that right. And then Liz also had a young daughter that lived with them as well from a previous relationship. So Ted confided to Anne that he really loved Liz a lot, but he actually was still hung up on another woman he had dated a couple of years beforehand. 
And this woman had dumped him and he just wasn't really able to get over it. He really was heartbroken. Well, he was irritated by the fact that he felt like he should have been able to marry her. And it just she dumped him and he wanted to be the type of person she would want to marry. Mm -hmm. So he kind of was thinking about it and he was like, you know what? I just want to win her back. So he essentially, one of the reasons, or I guess the main reasons she gave him was that he wasn't that ambitious and he didn't really have a plan for his life and too much of a people pleaser. So he went out and really decided to change that. And he started to study law. He was planning to go to law school. He was going to become a go-getter. He was joining, he was going up the ranks in the Republican party. He was Mm -hmm. getting involved in politics and really putting himself together because he wanted to be looking like a, a, a real great catch for this this woman that he was That's still a lot of on. effort to do all mm. that for someone else. And yes. it's not your own dream. Right, right. And so he really kind of became the ideal catch for a husband. Yeah. So eventually he kind of uh, weaved his way back, slithered his way back into this woman's life and re-pursued her now that he had like this pedigree and look where I'm going. I'm going to do all these big things. And Mm -hmm. she was like, whoa, okay. Now we're talking. Yeah. Yeah. So he starts to pursue her again pretty um, seriously. They get back together. They They get engaged. And then the second they get engaged, he just turns around and treats her like shit. <gasps> Dumps her. What? Yeah. So he did all of that to kind of wean her back. And then he was like, nope, I just wanted to know that I could. But this whole time, he's still with Liz. He never broke up with Liz. So he's two-timing Liz, that too. That is so strange. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he did it. Then he just dumps her and then he moves on. And she's hurt and confused. She doesn't get it. But right after he does this, some mm-hmm. weird stuff starts happening in Seattle. Women end up being attacked in their beds or murdered or abducted. And it starts to happen pretty frequently. And um, the cops are not really sure what's going on. And it's really creepy because these young women are attacked in their beds when there's people home in their apartments, in their houses. People are around when this is happening. Nobody's hearing anything. this person is a really great cat burglar Mm -hmm. getting in. Yeah, he can he can kind of get away with things. People will be walking, you know, 40 feet down an alleyway and they never make it to their destination like he's. They just poof into thin air and they never see these girls. They don't know where they, they go. Yeah, so it's really freaking everybody out. People don't know what to say, to say. And it's really scary and ballsy for whoever's doing this to break in and do this. When there's so many witnesses around, it'd be so easy to get caught. But nothing, right. nobody hears anything. So Ann Rule had been working with the Seattle police as a police officer. And then when she retired and became a writer, she was doing a lot of true crime writing. And so... They decided to ask her to write a book about these these mysterious attacks, these kidnappings and these murders, because they wanted to bring publicity to the stories and maybe it would help them catch the guy who was doing them. Mm-hmm. So she got commissioned to write a book about it. So her stories were based on true True crime. Abduction. True events. Yeah. True but, events. But when these series of women attacks in Seattle started to happen, they asked her to write a book because they thought it would help bolster getting them more awareness. Awareness right. and, and maybe help get some tips in. Gotcha. At first, the police had no suspects, but then a few months after these initial attacks and murders had began, an attractive man with his arm in a sling appeared at Lake Sammamish State Park, which is just east of Seattle. 
On that day, two girls went missing from that very park. That was a big deal because these two girls just upped and vanished, and it was part of sort of the pattern that they had been seen in, in and around Seattle. Many people were able to describe the man and that they had seen with the sling on his arm because he had been talking to a lot of different girls in the park that day. Um, and they said he was driving a light-colored VW Beetle. They also heard him say his name was Ted. And they do believe he was talking to the two girls who had disappeared, uh -oh. saying, come help me with my sailboat. And nobody ever saw a sailboat mm -hmm. near his car. So the police were like, finally, we have a lead. We had They had a sketch of the man. They had a car, VW, VW Beetle, and they had a name, Ted. They realized that the arm and a sling was probably just a ruse to get the girls over to his car to help him with his quote-unquote sailboat that didn't exist. Right, so he's vulnerable to mm. them. And then he's less of a threat because they don't mm -hmm. think he can do anything because he's injured, right? Yeah. So um, they start to ask the public for tips of anyone fitting that profile. Well, Ann Rule saw the bulletin and she was like, God, it looks a lot like my friend Ted. And it sounds like him and his name is Ted. She goes, but I don't think Ted has a car. And I, come on, it's not Ted. It's Ted. You know, Ted it's, wouldn't do that. It's not Ted. He's it's, a people pleaser. He's a nice guy and he helped he me through my divorce. Women. And he's a good guy. And so she tells her friend who's an officer, she's, you know, I have this friend, Ted. He, he's great. We have lunch and we get together and he's wonderful and he's smart and he's funny. And But he does look a little bit like the sketch and his name is Ted. She goes, but I don't think that he has a car, so it's probably not even him and that's mm -hmm. ridiculous. She gives her, the officer his name and I think his DOB and she was just, you know, make sure he's cool. And the guy's like, yeah, no problem. And then he comes back to her later. He goes, oh, actually, I looked him up. He does have a car. He has a VW bug. No way. <laughs> she's like, what? He goes, uh-huh. It's like a light tan VW oh. bug, just like the one spotted at the park. Um, she's like, but come on. It's not Ted. Ted is my friend. Ted wouldn't do this. What's the coincidence she's yeah. thinking? And how many so people? Crazy. How many people drive a VW bug? But how many people are named Ted? Really? They drive a VW bug. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, exactly. You look just like and the look sketch. just like the sketch. <laughs> Come on, Anne. It's your friend Ted. Oh, Anne. And then, you know, it would be hard. Like, what if someone were to come up to you and say, you know, this Carol's person that you know so well is a killer. A serial like, killer. Of course, I don't think that. I know that person. You know, it, it's not Carol. It's another Carol you're thinking of. Right. Exactly. Not me. You know, me. the one on that show. This is not the droids you're This is not for. my friend, Carol. <laughs> <laughs> but Ian was not the only person that reported Ted to the police. So did his girlfriend, Liz Clofer. Eventually, though, nothing ever came of the early suspicions around him, and he ended up moving to Utah to attend law school. How come nothing came of him? He had alibis or they something? They had a lot of people that fit the, the description, and so he was oh. on a list of people, and it just, they were trying to eliminate people. And so by then, he moved to Utah. Mm -hmm. And right about that time, the murders in Seattle stopped. But there was new murders beginning in Utah. <laughs> so it was kind of interesting Ted, how that worked out. No, mm. come on. You're leaving a trail here. Absolutely. Eventually, an officer in Utah caught Ted casing a house in the very early hours of the morning and pulled him over. Inside his car, they found what appeared to be a rape slash murder kit, which included a rope, a ski mask, tape, 
a crowbar, gloves, handcuffs, trash bags, pantyhose, and an ice pick, among other items. <laughs> and a Freddy Krueger glove. Mm-hmm. And, and Ted <laughs> just waved it all away like, well, these are just common items. They just happen to be my car. Like, what's the big deal? <laughs> but they called it a rape kit? Uh, well, there's there's stuff where you can, you know, tie people up and torture them. Yeah. And that's kind of like yeah. all the tools they need. Or murder. Yeah. Or murder. Or murder. Yeah. So the Utah detectives were like starting to put it together. Like, you know, we've had a couple girls go missing. And this is really weird. This guy is out here early in the morning and he's got all these things in his car. This is very, very strange. Mm-hmm. So they're starting to put it together that maybe they need to hold on to this guy. Um, this, of course, is what kicked off the legend of probably the most well-known famous serial killer in U.S. history, Theodore Robert Bundy. Yes. Or as Anne liked to call him, Ted. Teddy. Teddy. Teddy, Teddy Bundy. <laughs> While in Utah, Ted had tried to kidnap one woman from a mall, but she managed to escape. She was later able to identify him in a lineup as the man who tried to abduct her. Liz Clover, back in Seattle, his girlfriend, also heard about the murders in Utah, and she's like, wow, that's kind of a coincidence that my boyfriend is now in Utah and these murders are happening there. Yes. So she picks up the phone and she calls the Utah police to once again explain that, yes, she was dating the killer that they sought. And as their suspicions around Ted Bundy grew, they decided to fly out to Seattle to interview her and collect even more evidence against him. His VW bug was eventually confiscated by the police, and inside they found hair matching two of the murder victims. Uh Uh-oh. Ted was later linked to murders in Colorado, so he was extradited to Colorado. But while in custody there, he managed to escape twice. Once when he jumped out of a second-story window of a courthouse and disappeared into the woods for six days, he eventually showed back up in town and was caught by the police. The second time, he managed to escape again when he squeezed through a crawl space in his prison cell and worked his way through the ducts in the ceiling to the jailer's quarters where he kicked through the ceiling, dropped down, changed into the jailer's clothes, then walked out the front door like he owned the place. What a crazy, <laughs> like... Ballsy. He's what? ballsy. He He's an ultimate spy. Like, yeah. they should have recruited him for, like stealth work he is confident at af he really is and there's sometimes there's some video you can see of him and you can just see his calculating or you can see his confidence Mm -hmm. it just shines through him his you know he's just like how dare you don't you know who you're dealing with like just he's above and beyond everybody like you can see that attitude he holds about himself it's very interesting Hmm. so anyway The reason he got away with this is because he took his books and his files that he was using to study for his case. He put them under the blankets of his bunk so it looked like there was a body in there. So the prison guards just assumed he was still in bed. Yeah. When he looked in the window at him, they thought he was still asleep. I used to do that when I'd sneak out of my house. Yeah. Make, make a fake body of myself in the a, bed. It's very effective. Mm-hmm. It wasn't discovered that he had escaped until 17 hours after he had walked out of the building. So by that time, he was way, not even in Colorado anymore. He was gone. Right. It was the second escape, however, that would prove to be the most deadly for Ted. He stole a car, he caught a bus, then a plane, and eventually he ended up in Florida at the Chai Omega sorority house at Florida State University. On the night of January 15th, 1978, 
Ted crept inside Chai Omega House and bludgeoned and strangled two sorority sisters to death. Wow. Yep. He attacked two others, leaving them badly injured, breaking jaws and knocking out teeth, but they both survived. He then went down the street a few blocks, broke into a duplex and attacked a fifth victim, leaving her with multiple skull fractures, a jaw fracture, and dislocating her shoulder. She also survived the attack, but it left her deaf and her equilibrium was destroyed, which effectively ended her dance career. That is so weird that he turned so awful violent. Mm Mm-hmm. Because yeah. up until then, it didn't seem like he showed any of that side. There were things. Um, so I just finished The Stranger Beside Me, which we'll talk about here in a second. And she does talk about stuff in his childhood um, and how, well, we'll go into that a little bit more okay. detail. So I'll, I'll keep going here for a little sure. bit. Um, a few weeks later, Ted kidnapped, raped, and murdered another Florida resident, Kimberly Leach. She was only 12 years old. A few nights after Kimberly's disappearance, Ted was pulled over by Officer David Lee after he knows that the VW bug that Ted was driving was stolen. Ted was cooperating with the officer, but when the officer tried to arrest him for the theft of the car, Ted ran. The officer eventually caught him, wrestled him to the ground, and arrested him. That would be the last time Ted Bundy would be a free man. Ted Bundy was eventually connected to murders in Oregon, Colorado, Idaho, Washington, Utah, and Florida. So, of course, many people know the story of Ted Bundy and where Mm -hmm. he ended up. He went on trial for the sorority house murders, claiming the whole time that he was an innocent man and that all of the evidence against him was coincidental. Eventually, he was found guilty and he was sentenced to death in Florida's electric chair. He went on trial for a few more times and was found guilty in all of these trials. He was eventually electrocuted in Florida's Old Sparky on January 24th, 1989. Wait, wait, they called the chair Old Sparky? Yeah. They called it Old Spark. Oh, wow. He was 42 years old. During his final days, Ted shocked his family by admitting to the murders and giving detailed accounts of all those crimes that he was accused of. So he does eventually come around and, and say, yeah, I did it. So Anne Rule, for her part, knew that Ted had become a suspect while she was in the course of writing her book on the murders of the Washington victims. She truly did not believe it was him at first, and for a long time, she considered Ted innocent. However, as time went on, and she saw all of the mounting evidence against him, she slowly started to realize that her good friend Ted was indeed the man that she was writing about. Her book became less about bringing publicity to a case to help catch a killer, but more about a killer she already actually knew. Knew. Wow. What are the odds? Think about that. What are the odds? Someone comes to you and says, we want you to write a book about these girls who are disappearing. Mm -hmm. And you're like, oh, yeah, I'll do that. But I'm going to have dinner with my friend Ted tonight. And I'm going to tell him about the book. About my book. I'll start my research. And he knew all along that she was writing this book. Yeah, he did. The power he must have felt knowing that. Oh, yeah. He must get a rush every time he can escape a situation and get away with something. And I've heard... That in a lot of these cases, it's the thrill of the game, Yeah, right? It's a thrill of the game. Yeah. What were some of the signs that he gave to her? So, well, she never got any signs. She, oh, that's she why she took really a very thought... long time to really decide that he okay. was guilty because he was so charismatic and caring and funny and smart and not at all what you would think about a serial killer. But when she did research for her book, um, in the epilogue, a lot of this comes out, actually. She talks about the fact that... Um, 
he revered his grandfather and thought his grandfather was a loving, kind, wonderful person. But when she researched into it, turned out grandpa was a horrible human being. Really? Even his own brothers, his grandfather's brothers, wanted him to die. They said somebody should kill him. He was a tyrant. He tortured people. He was mean. He would yell. He would torture the animals in the family. He was abusive as fuck. And Ted just thought he was wonderful. That is so bizarre. So either Ted twisted all that behavior and turned it into something else in his brain and attached positivity to it, or Ted saw the behavior, thought it was powerful, and he wanted to emulate it. Yep. He wanted to emulate Mm -hmm. the powerful tyrant that he was. Right. So his mother had, there was three girls in the family. His mother was the oldest. She got pregnant with Ted out of wedlock, and she claimed it was some sailor. Um, They sent her to Vermont to have the baby there. So Ted Bundy was born in Vermont. And then she left him at the orphanage for three months while she decided what she was going to do. And I believe her family lived in like Philadelphia or Pennsylvania or somewhere northeast ways. So anyway, she eventually decided to keep it. But in those three months, he didn't really bond to her. No, and that is really important. They said when a child is born to really bond with a parent. Right. So his mom wasn't there. He never knew his dad. Um, There was speculation that maybe his grandfather was his father, but (gasps) we don't know for sure. So then she does go and she brings him back. Um, So initially they were raising Ted, his grandparents, he was told were his parents. And okay. so they were raising him as their own. And then his his mom was, he was told was his sister. And then there were two other sisters that were actually her sisters. Well, that's messed up mm-hmm. to lie to your kid about like, who's, who's his parents right. are. Yeah. So then I guess the youngest sister one night, she was asleep. And when she woke up, she said that the knives from the kitchen were all around her <gasps> with the, the blades pointing at her. And when she looked over, her three-year-old nephew, Ted, was standing there smiling at her. He was only three years old? He was three years old. According to Anne Roll, he was three years old when that happened. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. He's the son of Satan. Yeah. (laughs) Well, a little toddler, like, how how do they have that mind already? I know. But if you think about it, if his grandfather was as evil and vindictive as the family said he was mm-hmm. that could have passed into Ted somehow that genetically yeah. could have modeled come into to him or and... modeled to him or he has a disposition towards it. So who's to say anyway, but back to Anne rule. So those were things that she covers in this book. Um, this, it, it was huge. It's called the stranger beside me, huge bestselling book sold millions of copies. And in that book, she said for years and through Ted's arrest and his prison time, she and Ted would write back and forth to each other. He would even ask her to oh send... Oh, my God. She was still friends with him? The entire time. And no. All the way to the end. But she's writing a book about him now. So she wants the relationship. And oh. she still feels that that's her friend. And like I said, the whole time, most of the books, she's not sure he's even guilty. Till, okay. Till closer to the end. And then she's looking at all the evidence. And she's like, oh, yeah, I think he did this. But they wrote back and forth to each other. Um, he would ask her to send messages and flowers to Liz, his girlfriend in Seattle, who he was still in love with, he said. He did not fault Liz for turning him into the police. And he was still after her. Yeah, that's so weird that, like, he wouldn't come after her for revenge for doing that. 
I, and he had no problem hurting other women Anne, that he didn't even know. Anne said that she felt like Liz was like his mother, reminded him of his mother. And so perhaps oh. that was why. I don't know. But yeah, he still loved Liz. He asked Anne for advice in dealing with the police as he knew she was friends with many of them and had been one herself. Anne, on her part, would be supportive to Ted and send him money and things he may need in prison. All the time, she's weaving a tapestry of murder and mayhem in her book, going through very dark details of what her friend Ted had done. <laughs> so it's got to be a weird position to be in when you're writing a story about a bunch of murders that your friend you kind of believe committed, and yet yeah. you're still supporting him while you're writing about all the horrific deeds he did. Yeah, she's kind of two-faced, Dan. It's very, very creepy, yeah. Well... Mm -hmm. I respect her position. I get what she was doing. It would have been a bizarre place to be. Yeah, she'd have to uh, kind of be the friend to get the information. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then put on her writing hat and yeah. tell the truth right. in, the, in the book. Right. Mm -hmm. So eventually, um, after the wild success of The Stranger Beside Me, which, like I said, sold millions of copies, Anne Rule became a household name and a highly successful true crime author. She went on to write many more books about murderers, such as Small Sacrifices, mm -hmm. which is the story of Diane Downs, the Oregon woman who attempted to murder her three children by shooting them. Two of her kids actually survived that. Many of Anne's books became bestsellers, though The Stranger Beside Me is considered to be one of the best true crime books ever written simply because of the nature of her relationship with her subject. I mean, no author is ever going to be able to just fall ass backwards into a story like that because they don't have a relationship built with the person they're writing about typically. Right. It's just weird. It's like, what are the odds that she knew Ted Bundy and she was writing about him. And it's like, it's like Harper Lee and Truman Capote. It makes we're, you, we're neighbors. It makes you believe in destiny, yeah. like fate. Yeah. Like this was her, what are the odds? this was her path in life mm -hmm. to have this happen. And it's like, well, with Harper Lee and Truman Capote, they were best friends growing mm -hmm. up and they both turned out to be incredible, world renowned mm -hmm. writers. Mm -hmm. How do you play on that? Like, it's yeah. just bizarre. In fact, I've even heard that um, it was rumored that Truman Capote wrote To Kill a Mockingbird, but he didn't want the credit, so he gave it to Harper. But I don't want, I don't know if that was true or not. I didn't hear that. Yeah, but that's interesting. Because what are the odds that she would write the one, this one book and it would be that huge, you know? Right. And then she hasn't written and she, anything. Well, she wrote another one, but I think it came out after she died or just before she died. Or is she still alive? No, I don't think so. I don't so. think she is either. I'm not Let's sure. Let's look it up. She died. I, I think I remember she did die. She, did she wrote die one more book. In 2016. And I, yeah, she did die um, and she did write a second book. She had just gotten that out. Yes. And I, I she did That's why really... it was a big deal. But yeah. it wasn't that great of a book. Right. Well, that's why she never wanted to write a second because of pressure mm -hmm. and follow up for To Kill a Mockingbird. It's like, forget about it. Because <laughs> she didn't write it. Stop. No, okay. So anyway, The Stranger Beside Me is considered to be one of the best true crime books ever written. Anne Rule herself did pass away on July 26, 2015. She died of congestive heart failure. She was 83 years old. Okay, so here's some interesting paranormal stuff I'm going to tie into the rest of the story. Mm. Um, as for the Ted Bundy story, in her epilogue of The Stranger Beside Me, Anne Rule said the night of the Chi Omega murders, there were two sorority girls who experienced, these are my words, not hers, divine intervention. 
Um, really? Yeah. She said one of the girls had gotten up in the night to go to the bathroom because she had a sore throat and she wanted some water. Mm-hmm. Um, but when she got to the bathroom, she was overcome with paralyzing fear and she could not bring herself. It was either she couldn't go in or she couldn't flip on the light. I think it was flip on the light. But she was terrified. She had no reason to be terrified. She just was terrified and everything in her body told her to get the fuck out of there. So she turned around, went back to her room, shut the door and locked it. And a second sorority girl had decided she was hungry in the middle of the night. Yeah. So she left her room. She was going to go down the back staircase to the kitchen. And as she's going down the staircase, she stopped and she's like, I could not make my legs continue down the <gasps> stairs. She was, I knew I should not go to the kitchen. She turned around, went back up the stairs and closed her door and waited in her room. So both of these girls mm-hmm. really got that gut instinct yes. of this something is not is, right. Something's wrong. Something is wrong. That's amazing. And they had no reason because they didn't hear anything. They didn't see anything. That house was filled with girls. He walked in there and he he attacked four of them and then walked out. One girl saw him leave because she came in through the back door. Yeah. Saw him walk out. He didn't see her and nobody heard anything. Wow. And yet these two girls were up and something told them that they were in trouble. Yeah. I would believe in divine intervention Uh, if I experienced something like that for sure. Yes. Lucky. And so my favorite part of this story is one more paranormal element. Um, There was a news story on the local affiliate in, in Seattle area in 2016. Ted Bundy's childhood home, which is in Tacoma, Washington, was purchased with the intent of flipping the property for a profit. The new owner hired a company to do the work, a man named Casey Clopton, who worked for the renovation company, told the local news affiliate that the construction crew experienced very strange things in this house during the restoration project. The doorknobs would jiggle back and forth. They would hear footsteps. The drawers and the cupboards would be open when they would arrive for work, even though they were all closed when they left. The electric fireplace, which was unplugged, would begin emitting heat. Oh, no, 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 no. Clopton said at one point a big dresser that was built into the wall fell over on its face. He said one morning when the crew arrived to work, somebody had written the word leave in dust on the floor, L-E-A-V-E. They said that the alarm was not triggered on the house and there were no footprints around the dust written word. So if it was a person, how did they do that? So Ted is still living in that house. I don't know. He said that the crew penciled Bible verses onto the walls (gasps) and they had a pastor bless the home so that they could complete the remodel in peace. And that seemed to work too because it quieted things down. Oh, wow. Isn't that weird? That is a crazy story. Here's the thing about that. And here's what I wonder. Is it the ghost of Ted Bundy that haunts the home or was there something in the home when Ted Bundy and his mother moved into it that got into Ted Bundy? Well, was it an owner before them that had problems Uh, too? I don't know. That would be interesting to To, know. To kind of do a research. Because at some point um, when Ted was like four or five, he and his mother moved to Seattle. She met a, this guy with the last name Bundy, and yeah. that's who she married. And then he adopted Ted. And at that point, Ted kind of figured out that she was his mom. 
Mm-hmm. Nobody ever actually sat him down and explained that, but he figured he out. He already knew because the spirit was whispering to him at night and <laughs> uh, said, Ted, Ted, do I have some secrets for you, boy? <laughs> yeah, boy, you've been lied to. You, you no wonder have he was been angry. lied to. No wonder he was angry at women. But yeah. yeah, so my question is, was that the thing that got into him? Was there something already in the house that jumped into him? Or is what's there, if there is still something there, is it Ted Bundy? Did he ever like apologize for his crimes? I know you said he confessed and he said confessed he did all this end. stuff. Did he give a reason at all? Um, I don't think so. I'm not sure he knew. A lot of serial killers, um, not, not a lot. There's been a couple that I've heard of that say it's a compulsion that overwhelms them and they have to do it. It sounds like possession. It does kind of. But going back to his house, um, they sold the house. I just think this part is interesting. Okay. They sold the house in 2016. I'm sorry. The house was bought in 2016 for $170,000. Mm-hmm. It sold in March of 2017 for 325000 which it means they made a profit of $155,000. That's pretty good. They did good. But then on Zillow, it shows it sold again in April of 2017, which is the following month, for three thirty-five. dollars so $10,000 more. So I'm not sure if the first sale fell through and they sold it again or I don't know. That's kind of what it sounds like. And Zillow can have some inaccuracies okay. on there. So I'm not sure which one's correct. But mm-hmm. today Zillow says the house is worth about $525,800. And it's, you know, the, the remodel is really cute. There's pictures. I'll, I put a yeah. link on our website okay. that shows you the pictures of what it looks like. It is. They did a good job. But so a couple weeks ago, I think I told you. Yes. Um, I um, went up to Tacoma right? and I went with some friends and I we decided we were going to drive by this house. And so it was dark and we pulled onto the street. And as we're getting closer, um, I noticed that there is a, another car sitting just about where his childhood home would be. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I said, too, it was my sister, her boyfriend, my boyfriend and me. And we were all getting closer and closer. And I said, what do you want to bet that they're doing exactly what we're doing? <laughs> And so as we got to his house, sure enough, this house, this car was sitting there. They were gawking at the house just like we oh. were. And they had Oklahoma plates. Yes. And I'm like, do you think they came all the way here from Oklahoma and went to see Ted Bundy's house? <laughs> but That's it was a long ways away to come ways. see Ted Bundy's long, house. Long ways. So we just turned around and we went back down. But it's a, it's a cute house. It is. I don't think I'd want to live there because of the demon. But yeah. other than that. And you didn't think, like, if you were just to drive by and not knowing it was Ted Bundy's house and not knowing the history of the paranormal activity in it. It looks like a normal house. You would not know anything different about it from right. any other house. No, you wouldn't. It's very cute. You guys can look at it on the um, on our website with the links. You can click on there and see what it looks like. But it's blue with a yellow door. Like, they did a really cute job, like, changing it up and stuff. So... Yeah, well, so that's fascinating. That's that, kind of the story of Anne Rule, but it's yeah. more the story of Ted Bundy. But it's kind of about their relationship and how that book came to be, and just the unbelievable odds right. that she would know the guy. <laughs> it's a great yeah, story. I yeah. didn't know any of that. I mean, I knew a lot about Ted Bundy. I mean, everybody's heard a lot about his. Yes. Um, 
exploits. You know, exploits. Thank His you. His adventures. I, I did not know that at, at all about Anne Rule. Yeah. So I don't know if she just doesn't talk about it that much, or I'm just not into true crime books, and maybe that's why I didn't when, know. When he was, when all this was happening, she got interviewed by a lot of different media outlets. Oh, she did. She okay. did. She did talk about it quite a bit. It was really the book she was most well known for, though. After that book, she was she did fine with all of her subsequent books. Um, yeah, she was a really well known, well liked author. Um, but yeah, just so weird that that would be the case. She would happen right. to be friends with a guy who was doing all and the that murders. launched her career mm-hmm. as a it writer. Did. It did because so before that, changed you know, life. she mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. It's strange how like some really awful bad things for some people can be turned really into a positive set the course for a really amazing thing to happen in their life right and you just never know who that catalyst is going to be right yeah 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 so there you go well that, thank you very much Holly. yeah thank you Carol. really liked your story that was a that was a fun episode i enjoyed that yeah and uh you guys uh get inspired read some scary books get this some halloween good books that's right there's a lot out there that's right all right have a good night bye bye He said the part, especially about the death of kids. So in this oh, book, you know, the kids okay. die. Yeah, they do. There's yeah. this really busy road it's probably next to I his like home. It. And there's a... Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I'm oh, just, my God. I'm going to be quiet. This. I'm going to be quiet. Let you're Carol a, talk. You're on a roll. <laughs> I just really am enjoying your story. No, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to be quiet. Let you talk. No, 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 please. That's... <laughs> Um, in the home. No, not in the home. <laughs> this is why I need a script. <laughs> Buckle up, Josh. It's gonna be a long night. Okay, so this this is the story behind the story. <sighs> <laughs> Let's take a break. As the flames die down, do remain undaunted. Though all hitchhikers are ghosts, and all dolls are definitely haunted. guys be sure to follow us on instagram our handle is at fireside phantoms if you have a spooky story you would like to share with us send it to firesidephantoms at gmail.com and you may hear it on a future episode <laughs>